The latest word on the Second Avenue subway has many up in arms this morning. The project's so long in the making that its first delay was actually due to the Great Depression. Governor Cuomo has made clear that he would like us to accelerate work on the Second Avenue subway, and we are actively looking for ways to deliver the project faster. And that's when I said, no, we're, we're going to make the deadline just to show you that we can make the deadline, and we're going to do it right. I do think it came as a surprise to many people that there was a change in the funding, and I think that has to be reconsidered. Since we're talking about wish lists, it is always about funding and support for the many grand plans. The Second Avenue subway opens to riders this Sunday. But there have always been bigger plans for the Second Avenue subway. Government can still do big things because, Craig, if you don't believe it can, then we defeat ourselves. This is Ravi Gupta, and you're listening to The Regressives, a narrative podcast series from Lost Debate that examines progressive policies, ideas, and leaders in practice. And as a veteran of progressive campaigns, I've long felt that the values that liberals profess are often out of sync with what they do in practice. So this podcast series is dedicated to shining a light on those discrepancies in the hopes of eliminating them. And for those of you who come to this feed for the regular The Lost Debate show, we're still going to be back with regularly scheduled programming later this week. But the reason why I'm dropping this episode is because I have long been a fan of Brian Rosenthal, who's an investigative reporter at the New York Times and winner of the 2020 Pulitzer Prize for Investigative Reporting. And he joins me to discuss a series of articles he wrote a few years ago about the high costs and higher hurdles that often undermine infrastructure projects in New York City and the country as a whole. Simply put, why is it so damn expensive to build things in the United States? And I'm on fire about this because I've been somebody who's coached progressive candidates for a long time. And often what I see from them is that whenever there's a situation where there are concentrated benefits that special interests get to benefit from, but diffuse costs to society, progressives often sell out society as a whole for those narrow interest groups. And in this case, they're selling out taxpayers. And what happens is like whether it's unions or trade groups, the progressive politicians are saying, all right, like there's this group that's getting a boondoggle off of these massive infrastructure projects, and we're willing to pay them more and more and more to keep them happy, even if it dramatically increases unnecessary costs to taxpayers, because they count on taxpayers not rising up and saying enough is enough. So hopefully after you listen to the gory details about how expensive things are in New York City and the country as a whole, you're going to say enough is enough and call your local elected official and say, how are we doing procurement? How do the cost infrastructure in my community compare to other places around the country and around the world? And hopefully we can make a difference. So with that, let me turn it to Brian Rosenthal. Brian, welcome to the podcast. Happy to be here. Well, Brian, you wrote an article that caught my attention a few years ago. It was titled The Most Expensive Mile of Subway Track on Earth. What is that subway track that is the most expensive and why is it so expensive? Yeah, well, it's called the East Side Access Project, and it is a subway line that connects Long Island to uh, Grand Central Station uh, in New York, and it topped the list at, at $2.5 billion per mile. And, and just to put context on that, the average worldwide is about $500 million. So, so this was, was five times the average. And... Number two in the world in, in most expensive is the Second Avenue subway, 
line, uh, which they're building on the east side of Manhattan. Um, and that's at about $1.7 billion per mile. Uh, so these costs are tremendously high. They're higher than any other projects in the world by far. In terms of the reasons why they're more expensive, it really runs the gamut. I mean, it's kind of a classic case of everywhere along the way is more expensive. And in our reporting, we really documented in very minute detail showing exactly how at every point along the way it's more expensive. When they are drawing up the plans, when they are uh, putting it out to bid, uh, when they are, of course, building it, uh, and the unions have their rules that require more more uh, workforce, more pay, the consultants that are involved, the profits that the companies that are involved get, really every step of the way, uh, it is significantly more expensive. What's interesting about this is that New York is it's more expensive than other labor-friendly cities that are also labor-friendly. It, it's more expensive than other cities that have other you know, issues of costs like San Francisco, LA, you know, you'd look at a place like Paris or something and you'd say, all right, this is a pretty labor-friendly place. You know, it's, I wouldn't say that they're the most efficient, efficiently run government ever, but New York somehow is outpacing all of these places. And so that's why I think these details are really fascinating. As we start this, who is in charge of New York City's construction before we get into any of the details of, of how these costs have gotten where they are? So it's the MTA, the Metropolitan Transportation Authority, which runs into a problem right there, <laughs> right from the beginning, uh, because the MTA focuses almost exclusively on transportation within the city of New York, but it's not run by the city of New York. It is run, if anything, by the governor of the state of New York, but it's not really completely run by him either. Or her now, yeah. Right, adjusting to, <laughs> to the new governor, yeah. So there's uh, there's a real lack of accountability because there's no one particular entity that's in charge. Correct me if I'm wrong, the MTA is, is run by a board where the governor, I think, has significant power to appoint the members of the MTA board. And I think the mayor gets maybe some say in who's on that board. Is that right? Or is it just the governor? No, it's it's a mix. It's the, the governor does hold a majority of the appointments, but the mayor has appointments. The surrounding counties outside of the city all have have appointments as well. So so it's a mix. And so and we'll come back to that because I think when we start talking about incentives, it's going to be really important to think about all right, who has the power here, uh, and who's benefiting from this cost overrun. So we'll come back to that, but let's talk about the cost overrun. So obviously, labor is a big part of it. And there, there's this heavy machinery that we use to dig tunnels. I think we call them TBMs. Is that what we call them? And in most cities, per your reporting, it takes fewer than 10 people to operate each one of these TBMs, these big pieces of machinery. How many are we using per machine in New York City? In New York City, it is generally about 25 people that are uh, on the TBM around the TBM, supporting the TBM. And, you know, I, I've gone down into the tunnels and I've seen them. And it is, it's pretty wild because they're, they are big machines, but there are a lot of people and, and not all of them are, <laughs> are doing something. <laughs> I can tell you that. Yeah, yeah. And you mentioned Paris earlier. Uh, you know, I, I went to Paris and I, I observed their construction and they've, 
they have the exact same machine, the, the TBM. It, it's a standard uh, for subway uh, construction projects now. And they were operating it fine with 10 people. You know, I counted the number of people yeah. on there and, and the machine was operating fine. So, so yes, that is kind of a classic example of, of uh, the union's power to get in place extra people on the job. And so two and a half times uh, the amount of people that it takes in Paris and in a lot of other cities. And the unions will argue, all right, these people are required to make it safer. You did some reporting that suggested that that might not be the case, right? It's not that we have a better safety record with all these people down there. Yeah, we, we looked at that and, and analyzed the number of safety incidents per work hour, uh, which is exactly the type of thing uh, that you'd think would be affected by these labor rules. And we found that on the Second Avenue subway, for example, there were five, uh, 5.5 safety incidents for every 200,000 work hours. And the average is just 3.2. It's almost half that. So it's actually, maybe maybe we should have fewer people down there. We'll have fewer uh, incidents, fewer people, but people you know more active. Uh, it's pro- it could be the opposite of what they're suggesting. It could actually be a safety hazard to have too many people involved in these projects. It's possible. It's certainly not helping, though, I guess is the point. Like their rationale doesn't seem to stand up. There are also, you know, these workers, they call them sand hogs, right? The people who dig dig these tunnels. How much are they making both in, in traditional hourly wages or per hour wages on average and overtime? And how does that compare to their peers in other major cities across the country? Yeah, so the sand hogs are the people who are down in the tunnels and they are digging. And just to be clear, it's very difficult work. It's dangerous work. But I think it is useful to look at the pay rate. And so we actually obtained the contracts governing these pay rates. And we found that the the standard rate is $111 per hour. And that amount is doubled for overtime. And it's doubled for uh, weekend work. And if you're working overtime on the weekend, then it's quadrupled, uh, which is, I guess, $444 per hour. So it's a significant amount of money. Yeah, it's like brain surgery money at this point. <laughs> uh, and so I imagine that, so this is a union. What's the, what's the union that, that governs transportation in New York? Well, there, there are a few unions. There's the one for the Sandhogs is Local 147. But uh, the main one is uh, the TWU, the Transit Workers Union. And I'm going to guess that these are unions that have pretty significant relationships with elected officials who appoint the very MTA officials who make the calls on these construction projects. Have you have you done any digging into that, like, you know, donations, endorsements and whatnot, and what that tells us about the mayor, the governor, uh, these other politicians who are involved in, in choosing the MTA leadership? Yes, we have. And it, just as you said, these unions are very politically active. We found uh, that the unions working on MTA projects specifically have donated more than a million dollars specifically to the former governor, Andrew Cuomo, while those projects were going on. And, you know, it's not just political contributions either. These unions in the state of New York have a lot of political power. They getting the endorsement of the union is something that can really make or break elections uh, in New York, especially down the ballot. And uh, it is something that's definitely front of mind for politicians. You know, when we're building these subway lines, 
there's also other parts of the subway. It's not just about the digging the holes. It's about you know installing escalators and putting tile down and doing other construction related work. And there are construction companies and contractors involved in that work. What do we know about what's going on there? Is this a competitive process? Is this a process that's efficient and you know cost effective, or are there cost overruns at that stage of the process as well? As well. There are definitely cost overruns. And the first point I want to make about this that I think is really important for people to understand is when it comes to private subway construction in New York, there is a very strange dynamic around the labor costs. And you would think that the costs of how much a worker on the subway uh, construction is being paid would be governed by a contract between the worker or their union and the government, which is paying for the project. But in reality, that is not the case. What happens in New York is that the costs are negotiated between the union and the contractor, which is the private company that is doing the work. Now, neither of those entities have any incentive to lower costs. Obviously, (laughs) the union wants as much pay for its members as possible. But the private companies also want the prices to be higher because they get a percentage profit of how much the project costs. So they sit down in the room and they basically figure out how much money, the maximum amount of money they can possibly charge is. The companies that are involved in New York, first of all, it's a small number. And we actually looked at the number of bids on projects in in New York and the average is about three bids per project. Whereas internationally, uh, you usually have eight or nine or 10 companies bidding on projects. So it's a smaller number. There is a lot of connection between the companies and the unions and the politicians. Um, a lot of the people that used to work at the MTA now work at, at the, uh, for the contractors. And one of the things that was the most interesting about our reporting is that we were able to look at the actual contracts. We got our hands on actual contracts and the contracts say the percentage profit that the company usually gets. And on average, internationally, a company goes into working on a big subway construction project and they get about a 5% profit. In New York, for whatever reason, it's a 10% profit. And that is just purely the money that goes to the company. And so we're talking about a higher percentage of a higher overall cost uh, is going to these companies. So it's, it's a problem in both counts. One question I have that I'm puzzled by is why so few bidders? Like you'd imagine with so much money at stake, why don't more companies exist to compete for these dollars? Yeah, it's a good question. We heard some different answers on that. One of the answers we heard is that the MTA is basically a mess. <laughs> um, <laughs> and the the people that, that run the construction department at the MTA are bureaucrats who are annoying to work with and put up a bunch of hurdles <laughs> and just nobody really wants to work with them. E- even if they can get a, make a bunch of money, it's just not worth the headache. The other explanation that we heard perhaps more cynically is that because of the connections between the MTA and the politicians and the major companies that do a lot of the work here in New York, there's a sense, I don't know if it's true, they don't know if it's true, but there's a sense at least that the bidding is rigged for those companies. 
and that even if they would have put in a bid, it wouldn't go to them anyway. It would go to one of the companies that the MTA always works with that, you know, the MTA's former chairman is now running. That's something that we heard a lot as well. And so in, in the world of bid rigging, as somebody who is a Democratic operative for many years, you know, you, you work enough in politics and you, you get to know some people who spend some time in, in federal facilities for, for bid rigging. So there's there's the illegal bid rigging, which happens all across the country. It happened in Mississippi, happens here. There's like actually illegal bid rigging and then there's just like soft bid rigging, right? Where it's like, instead of just like saying, hey, you gave me a bribe and I'm going to rigged the, the bid for you, which is illegal. And there's like a lot of cases of people getting into trouble for that. There's like a soft bid rigging, right? You donate money to my campaign. There's a revolving door amongst my staff and your company. Then the next staff who want that next job want to cozy up to you. It could be either explicit or implicit. They might not even fully realize that they're biased in the selection process, right? So is that kind of what could be going on here? Like, obviously, there could be explicit bid rigging that's illegal, but there's like a more amorphous type of possibly illegal, possibly legal favoritism that could be going on, right? You know, we documented in our reporting, first of all, a lot of donations. We talked about the union's donations to politicians earlier, but the companies themselves donate a lot, uh, $5 million dollars. Uh, over the past 20 years or so. We also found that over a dozen workers have been fined for accepting gifts from contractors. The director of the Second Avenue Subway, for example, got a $2,500 round of golf and, and dinner and ticket to a gala from a contractor. Wow. And one of my favorite things about the analysis is we actually went back and looked at the top leaders of the MTA over time. And over the last two decades, there have been 25 people who have been in a senior leadership agency president position at the MTA. And we found that of those 25, 18 of them went on to either become a consultant for a contractor or went to work for a contractor themselves. You know, why even bribe somebody when you don't have to, right? That's like, you know, you know, you're going to get that payout eventually if you scratch somebody's back, right? Which might not be happening in every case here, but it certainly is a risk that we have. Have any, has anybody uh, proposed banning that revolving door? Are there politicians out there in New York or, or are there other cities that, that do this better than we do where they say you can't go from working at the MTA and working these companies for some period of time or ever? I don't know of any proposal. Certainly, there's not been a proposal that's gained a lot of steam in New York. The the thing I think we should caveat is that this type of thing is very common elsewhere, even in places where construction costs are much lower. So, you know, it's a piece of the puzzle, but I don't want to uh, don't want to emphasize it too much. It seems like incentives are the issue here, right? In every step of the way you've cataloged, the incentives are for the people who are spending money to spend more, and Somewhere along the line, we have this situation where there's a very concentrated benefit to these companies, to these unions, et cetera, and there's like this diffuse cost. Everybody in New York who's a taxpayer is paying more. And it seems like the only people who could stand in the way here and do something about it are the politicians, right? They're the people who represent the taxpayers. Is there any momentum for a reform in Albany and around New York, or has this pretty much gone quiet since your reporting in 2017? 
Yeah, so after we published this front page major story, we were frankly surprised at the reaction from the political class, which was basically, damn, you're right. Anyway, what else should we talk about? <laughs> oh, um, you know, the, the, there really was not a significant move. The governor at the time, Andrew Cuomo, did create a task force, but that task force didn't end up recommending anything that really moved the needle. Well, there's that saying in politics, right? Like if you want to kill an idea, send it to a committee, right? So that's <laughs> yeah. probably his task force, right? And he was he was fighting with his own MTA chief for a while too, right? During a period of time. He certainly was. But, you know, there, there were a lot of people who were talking about it, but nothing really happened. Obviously, the pandemic came along. There have been uh, a lot of other issues. And right now, the MTA is embarking on a lot more major construction projects. And uh, I don't know if there was a headline just a couple, few weeks ago, actually, about a, a new construction project where MTA was building a new staircase at the Times Square subway station. And that single staircase ended up costing $30 million. Uh, so, oh, my God. Um, For a staircase? I, I think, well, uh, I think I think that was including some, some uh, things in relation to the staircase as well. Was it made but, of uh, diamonds? <laughs> I haven't inspected it, but it's possible. <laughs> well, as a lo- as a lifelong New Yorker, man, like we went from the situation where you may know this, like it took us, what, four years to make the sort of core of the New York City subway system back in the day. And now it's taking us, you know, how long did it take to make the, the Second Avenue subway line? So it's not just money, it's time too, right? Yeah, and, you know, time is money. and And part of what makes these projects take so long is the bureaucracy and navigating all, all these consultants that are brought in at large costs and, you know, navigating some of these same issues that we're talking about. You know, I think one of the big takeaways from our reporting that I found really interesting was just the idea of the amount of money that we spend is important, not just because it's our money and we don't want our money to be wasted, but also because if we overspend on projects, that reduces the amount of projects that we can have. And there's a reason why New York City has not really built significant new subway lines in decades. And so that is part of the reason why we don't have as good a transit system as we should. Yeah, it's and it's, it seems to infect all infrastructure, right? Like, And I know that some of this is city, some of it's the state, et cetera. But similar forces are at work in a lot of these situations. Like a good example I was looking at this morning was the amount of public bathrooms we have. In New York, the stat I looked at says that there are four public bathrooms per 100,000 residents. And as somebody who lives down here uh, in the Lower East Side and, and Nolita, I live by the Bowery Mission. And you see you know, homeless people just don't have anywhere to go to the restroom. And for a long period of time, this was, you know, this was something that people would get arrested over. There's been a slight decriminalization over it, but it's like an embarrassment that a city that for so long was in the vanguard of infrastructure. You know, our subway was revolutionary. The Brooklyn Bridge was revolutionary. We had, you know, we were we were light years ahead of the rest of the world. Somewhere along the way, stalled. Have you have you been able to look at our history and say, around this time is when things started to change? I haven't been able to pinpoint that, no. 
it's it's interesting looking back and, and you hear stories about you know Grand Central being built and how magnificent the, the projects were at the time and and seemingly so easily and and it's hard to know whether that is nostalgia or, or that something is just so broken about what's happened and I haven't been able to pinpoint uh, I don't think a, a light switched at one point I think it may have been a, a gradual um, decline in, in terms of our effectiveness over the years. For our audience that is not from New York, like why should they care about the story? Like how much of the story of New York, like though more dramatic than the rest of the country, is indicative of something American as well? Like are there versions of the story around the country? I know that your reporting was very much specific to New York, but is this is this a dynamic that people in San Francisco or LA or Atlanta or Chicago or DC have some version of as well? Well, I think think it's a cautionary tale more than anything else. The New York City subway is fairly unique in the United States. You know, we went searching for comparison points about construction costs and other things in our reporting. And it's really hard. I mean, there's Chicago, which is maybe the most extensive subway outside of New York, but it's mostly elevated tracks. There's DC, but that's a somewhat smaller scale that it's it's not really relevant. There's San Francisco, but but kind of the same thing. So New York City is rare, but at this moment in history, there are a lot of cities that are thinking about it and trying to build it out. And, you know, I was in LA recently and, you know, they're, they're working on expanding their, uh, their system. Uh, Seattle is really working on expanding their, their system. And so I think what's important about New York is something that you can look at and see a lot of things going wrong. And hopefully other places around the country will not repeat those mistakes and will instead learn from them. And before they get kind of ingrained into those practices, they do something different. Well, Brian, this is really illuminating conversation. If there were one change as we close this out, if there's one change that you wish to see uh, in the way New York does its business, if you could just pick one thing, if, you know, if there are politicians listening to this or other people who are who are powerful, what would the first thing you do? What, what what's that first item on your list? I think the if I had to pick one thing, I think the incentive structure, to your point, is the thing that I would probably tackle first. And I'm thinking about, for example, the oddity where the costs for something are negotiated between the union and the company, neither of which have any incentive to lower the costs. If you could create some incentive in that boom, either with the government taking over those negotiations, if that would create enough of an incentive, or with some policy incentive to you know, maybe put in place a policy where if those entities are able to reduce the cost, they, they get some other benefit. If you can just introduce an incentive for at least somebody that the prices could go down and, and it would be good for them, I think that'd be a place to start. Well, Brian, thank you very much. Super illuminating reporting. And I hope the Times keeps you on this beat because this is really important stuff. And you know, I'm hoping for the city of New York that people are paying attention. Thank you. Well, that's it for this week's episode. I'd once again like to thank Brian Mosenthal for an illuminating conversation and infuriating conversation. Regresses is produced for Lost Debate by Joe Engelbrecht with research support and help from Joe Garvey and Monica Aspitia. 
You can subscribe to The Lost Debate and The Regressives on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. I'm Ravi Gupta. Thank you for listening.